KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Economic forces are prompting cuts in newsrooms across the country. The journalism outlets that show that they are part of the community rather than reporting on the community are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. We're talking about the state and future of journalism this week. Some people say they don't trust the quote-unquote news media because we report facts. Some people are allergic to facts and the truth. Our conversation dives into the changing landscape and other threats to the facts. There's a a lot of people who are deliberately trying to destroy uh, the institutions of the press. Stay tuned, this discussion coming up just ahead on Roundtable. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The state and future of local journalism today with some of San Diego's news leaders. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is a special hour of KPBS Roundtable. It's been a trying month for American journalism. Gannett, the largest newspaper chain in the country, recently laid off hundreds of staff, and so did CNN. The Washington Post publisher says that the paper will cut more jobs next year, and that news comes just weeks after eliminating its Sunday magazine and even more layoffs. The problems facing these media giants are the backdrop for our conversation today on Roundtable. We're talking about the future of journalism. On this special episode of Roundtable, we'll hear from some of San Diego's news leaders about the state of the industry and where it may be headed. Joining me on Roundtable this week are Voice of San Diego CEO and Editor-in-Chief Scott Lewis is here with us. The San Diego Union-Tribune's editorial and opinion director, Matt Hall, is here, and so is my boss, KPBS News Director, Terrence Shepard. I want to welcome you all so much to Roundtable, and we want to start this conversation off on a more positive note with a question about the power of local journalism. I want you all to think for a minute and give an example of a story from your newsroom that, you know, shows why we need local news. And I'll start with you, Terrence, and then we'll go to Matt and Scott. But Terrence, do you have a recent example of that? So we had a recent series about nursing homes and how some are extremely dangerous places. The story also highlighted how state regulators seem timid about enforcing the rules and cracking down or even shutting down these operations. 
as this type work is an, an extremely valuable consumer service and a reminder that if you're shopping for a residence for a loved one, you better do some homework, you better do some research. Now, the simple fact that a nursing home is operating and has people living there is no guarantee that your loved ones will be safe. And Matt, what about your thoughts? It's a little dated, but I like the dollar figure attached to it. Jeff McDonald's reporting on the SDG&E uh, shutdown deal at San Onofre saved taxpayers $775 million. That's million with an M. And when you're talking about $125 for a newspaper subscription over the course of a year, it's a pretty good ROI, which means return on investment. And Scott, go ahead. Well, this is hard for me to decide. I, I think the uh, one of the most compelling stories we ran was uh, Lisa Halberstadt profiled a family over the course of a year uh, as they experienced homelessness and uh, father was working at a, at a supermarket in Pacific Beach but they couldn't find a place to live and uh, eventually the RV that they were living in was uh, confiscated by the city and towed away and the story about that and their experience of just how hard it was for them to claw their way out of that poverty really uh, pushed the city to find and open uh, more opportunities for safe parking, and uh, and they ended up getting uh, them into a stable housing situation. But at the same time, also showed that even as with the whole city mobilized to help one family, it took months for them to get into stable housing. And so the one it was bittersweet in the sense of just shows how much can happen if you highlight somebody's story but also just how dire the situation is because it's almost like they won the lottery because we did that. I remember it was very, also very well visually told too with photos. And Terrence, we know that you recently started working here in San Diego. I'm curious just generally, what do you think of the news scene here? Like, how do you think San Diego does when it comes to holding public officials accountable? So Matt, San Diego is a great news town. I see that every single day. It's on the coast, it's on the border. And in every large urban area, there are natural collisions of ideas, people with competing goals and interests. And so there is plenty of news. The issue of accountability applies here in San Diego and elsewhere, and that you just can't have enough journalists to help hold people accountable. So journalists everywhere need to keep asking questions about why things are the way they are. Who was in charge of these policies? Who made these decisions? Who benefited? Who came out worse as a result of these policies and decisions? Are there connections between lawmakers and people who are at the end of the pipeline? Who's making campaign contributions? Who are the lawmakers' close associates or the business owners', owners close associates? So these are things that I see plenty of journalists in San Diego doing. But again, you can't have enough of that type of accountability journalism. Yeah, and I think you referenced like the amount of journalists in there. And there's some headlines this week about American news organizations, and they're sort of grim layoffs and a strike over pay and benefits. And we know that the impacts at places like Gannett are, of course, going to be felt in local newsrooms. Uh, a question for everybody, and Matt, we'll start with you first on this one. Do these cuts represent what's happening in the journalism industry right now? Yeah, I mean, I think each outlet is unique, and we're starting to see that. Uh, obviously, when you're talking about, you know, Gannett and some of these big companies that own multiple newspapers, there'll be a ripple effect, more of a wave effect. But, you know, just looking at San Diego, I mean, the Union Tribune is financially stable. It makes money every month. Uh, and in, in, in large degree, that's because of the efforts we've made to reach out to the community and to show them that they're not a subscriber. 
they're, I mean, to use Scott's kind of nomenclature at voice, they're a member, right? They're part of our community. They're part of our journalism community. And they, and, and, and the work that we do with them, and in my opinion team, we, we reach out to them all the time. We publish their essays. We um, bounce ideas off them. We heed their criticism when they tell us that they, that we got it wrong. And I think that's where you're going to start seeing uh, fault lines between journalism outlets that are having success and journalism outlets that are having to resort to layoffs and um, you know all the rest of those horrible things that you kind of detailed. I, I think the, the the journalism outlets that show that they're part of the community rather than reporting on the community are the ones that are going to survive and thrive. Interesting. Scott, your thoughts? I think that what you're witnessing is this transformation of American media in, and this kind of journalism in particular where it, it is moving away and has been moving away from getting its money primarily from advertising that runs alongside of it to getting it from the community, whether it's philanthropically like Voice and KPBS do, you can give as much as you can to the organization or whether it's subscription-based. Either way is the same concept that the future of journalism depends on being able to get individuals who value it to pay for it uh, to a certain level. And I think what we're seeing is national outlets that have vast readership across the country, if not the world, have a much bigger pool, you know, that they can get that from. They can get, if they have 100 million readers, then getting just 10% of them to pay is an extremely high number of people and, and dollars that come in. But if you have a metropolitan outlet that, you know, reaches 100,000 people, 10% of them paying, is a much smaller number. Will that sustain those newsrooms going forward? And I think that's what we're, we're all trying to figure out is every news organization of that type is sort of marching toward a cliff and that's where it's no longer worth them printing the paper that they have because their advertising dollars for that print paper have gone down. When they reach that cliff, will they have gotten enough from readers to help them you know, build that bridge to the future? And that's what we're all waiting to see. And Terrence, what are your thoughts here? Do you uh, sort of agree with what Scott's saying? 100%. Uh, the march toward the cliff is an unfortunate one. And I'd say that you know, layoffs and strife for paying benefits, there are those are issues over journalists who actually provide a service. But the people who suffer the most are the communities because those are the people who are going to have fewer journalists reporting on things that need to be reported on holding officials accountable, providing views of what life is like. Uh, some people turn to journalists to see reflection of their own lives. And the fewer journalists you have, the fewer opportunities there will be to see that reflection. And that will lead to the downward spiral that we're seeing in society, the increase in alienation, the siloing of ideas and thoughts. And so that's the real cost. It's to the communities. And Matt, we, we know that you're unique on this panel since you're the only one working in a for-profit news organization. And I think you said a little bit earlier, you guys are making money month over month, but we know that there's a downturn in the economy and we've seen that impacting journalism jobs. But have you seen any of those impacts happening locally? Yeah, I mean, we've been very fortunate. Our, our My team has grown since I took it over seven years ago, I guess, um, at a time when the industry has been in great tumult. Uh, uh, you know, I think what you're starting to see, though, is some longtime faces of San Diego journalism 
Carla at our paper, Carla Peterson and Jay Posner, uh, a longtime arts columnist and a sports editor, leave after decades of service. Um, and at NBC, I think um, you're starting to see a couple prominent departures in a week or so. Um, Roy Devine and Artie Ojeda are leaving um, after decades of work here. And so the question is, to your point, is can these newsrooms with the kind of problems that Scott laid out financially attract journalists, not just readers or listeners or viewers, but journalists? And so that's one of the things that you're starting to see a lot of newsrooms think through, I think, more fully, more holistically, is what do they need to do to make them an attractive place for journalists to work? Assuming there are people who are interested in being journalists, and spoiler alert, there are. Um, you know, but I think outlets need to do things. They need to attract um, diverse, energetic uh, journalists to their sides and then retain them. And so the question will be whether those people who come to these outlets in a year or two are here in 10 years. And I think that's an open question. I think the days are gone that journalists are sticking around a place for 30 years, like the four journalists that I mentioned. And we know that a downturn in the economy, it also impacts the nonprofit news industry. Scott and Terrence, what are your guys' thoughts here about maybe what could be coming or is already happening? Yeah, uh, nonprofits are, are businesses that it does, a lot of people joke, well, like, well, I'm a nonprofit because I don't make any money or whatever. But like, you do have to make money and pay people well and, and make sure they're okay. Uh, and I think that the scale, though, needs to be kept in mind, like, Voice San Diego operates on a, a about two point two million dollar budget. Um, you know, the it's a fraction of what the opera or other nonprofit organizations operate on. You can cover a community. Um, you could we could deploy you know seventy journalists to cover every corny corner of San Diego for you know roughly eight to nine million dollars, maybe a little bit more for for infrastructure with them. It. That kind of philanthropy is a little bit more insulated from the economic cycles than other types of things. And um, that's why I think it's it's uniquely suited to help solve this problem in a community. Now, that said, philanthropists are, uh, you know, often uh, represent a small portion of society and, and you need to make sure uh, to correct for, for that. But the broad public also can can you know, they want to pay and have shown that they want to pay, you know, uh, uh, 30 to 50 to 100 to sometimes $5,000 a year. So what can you do to loosen that up to make it feel like it's something worth doing so that you can cover a community well? Uh, we hope to be able to hit our budget. I, I'm crossing my fingers, checking the mail every every week, every day this week as the end of the year approaches. But if things go well, we should be able to add an investigative reporter for the South Bay. Now, that's just one step, but um, it's a step we've been aiming for for several years. And so there is a path to um, to making a difference, and it doesn't cost that much. And it is a little bit more insulated from the economic cycle than advertising is. And Terrence, what are your thoughts here? How do you sort of balance all this right now? So our model is based on donations. We're a nonprofit. The key to our success is to have as many donors as possible. During our pledge drives, we will say give as much or as little as possible because that sort of balances out the risk portfolio. It's better to have thousands, tens of thousands of small donors and say one big donor who may want to take their chips and go home someday 
But in terms of covering the community, uh, I've never met an editor who doesn't say, I, I need, I, I don't need any more reporters. Of course, we could all use more reporters, but the main issue is to pick and choose what exactly you will be covering. What type news organization are you? What are you going to offer your audience? What's that thing that they're going to come to KPBS for? And so the smart news organizations will figure out if this is a marketing question, how to best cover what you cover. What what are the KPBS only stories? We want to do more of those because we can't cover every single corner of San Diego County. It's impossible for anyone to do that. But each news organization needs to figure out what they do well, what is their lane, and stick to it and keep doing that to the best of their abilities. Coming up, the way news was consumed just a generation ago is much different than today's ever-changing online world. How news organizations are adapting to meet readers where they're at. You're listening to a KPBS Roundtable Special. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to a KPBS Roundtable special on the future of journalism. I'm Matt Hoffman, and joining me at the Roundtable this week are Voice of San Diego's CEO and Editor-in-Chief Scott Lewis, the San Diego Union-Tribune's Editorial and Opinion Director Matt Hall, and KPBS's News Director Terrence Shepard. And I'm sure when you all entered news, you know, the way you guys consumed it is different than what's happening now. We know that that's constantly changing. I'm curious what some examples of adjustments that your organizations have made, you know, to sort of meet people where they're at and and where they want to consume news. And uh, Terrence, we can start with you here. Well, I can point to our recent election coverage, uh, our voter, voter hub, the KPBS voter hub, made a concerted effort, I think for the first time, to offer Spanish language uh, translations on all the races or of all the important races. We recently had a presentation for our digital editor and it says those efforts paid off. And so some people prefer consuming news and getting that important information in Spanish. And so based on the data, we expect to be doing more of that in the future. And Matt, what about you? Any, uh, you, have you created like a TikTok account or anything? We're on post. Join us. It's the future. Um, we have done a couple big things. Uh, we have a community voices project, which is dozens of uh, people in the community, a wide range, carved every way you could carve a community um, representation um, to ensure better representation. Uh, and, and they write essays at any length, at any time, on almost any subject, which is our, our way to kind of get around the problem that we have with our newspaper constraint, which is largely we dictated the discussion for years we told them how long their essays could be and generally picked the subjects and that's the wrong way to have a conversation um 
that that's going to amount to anything. So that's one thing that we did that's pretty substantial. We also have a community advisory board. This is not unique to the Union Tribune. Some other outlets are doing it, but it's a way, again, I keep talking about the community. It's a way for us to meet monthly and to communicate more regularly with 15 or 20 people, again, a diverse cross-section of San Diegans who can suggest story ideas to us, who can hold us accountable, who can be kind of eyes and ears for the community. Because any newsroom, whether it's 10 people or 100 or 1,000, is only as good as their lines of sight and, 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 and lines of communication with their audiences, with their communities. So those are two big things we did. We also, on my team and at the Union Tribune, value the Spanish-speaking audience. We have a Union Tribune on Espanol and um, one of the additions to my team, um, Tanya Navarro, helps us translate much of our opinion content into the Spanish language. We actually ran a Spanish language editorial in the newspaper for the first time ever in the company's history during the pandemic when we were criticizing the county for not doing enough outreach into the Latino community, especially in South Bay. And we thought we could do an editorial in English that English speakers will read and, and share. Why don't we also translate into Spanish and run that on the same day? So we ran in, uh, editorial side by side, one in English, one in Spanish. And the reception, I don't know if this is how you got it too, Terrence, was largely positive, but there were some idiots who were like, you know, what about uh, English being the American language, don't you know? Um, and that was some criticism that I was happy to, to dismiss and to explain to people the impact that we had with that one editorial. And Scott, we know that Terrence and Matt, they sort of come from more traditional media backgrounds, but obviously overlap with changing. You guys were inherently digital, so have you guys sort of kept up with where your audience is or how they're changing? We try to do, um, uh, we've always tried to uh, incorporate technology and the different tools that are out there rather than try to reinvent anything or create anything ourselves. Um, I think uh, we've had a lot of success with our podcasts. Our live podcast events are a lot of fun, um, and we've moved around the county uh, with them. And, and uh, I, particularly this year, our annual event, PolitiFest, we ended up having a PolitiFest South version for the mayor's races in, in Chula Vista and National City. And that was well attended at a great spot uh, at the Emo Brown Foundation. It was just a fun experience. Um, we've focused a, a lot on on just making sure we're really good at the things that we do. So um, uh, I've dabbled in TikTok and had a lot of fun with that. But um, we'll wait till you know we we can really be good at it to do something special. I think that there's uh, there's a lot of emphasis though now in in trying to rather than writing about people and expecting them to want to read about themselves. We try to do things that are uh, interesting to uh, a broader group of people across uh, the city and the region. And that's had a lot of success. I think we're, we're trying to hire and, and empower people who are really interesting to the people that they are, are um, serving. And I think, uh, you know, ultimately we are all, all prominent and try to be prominent entertainers and educators and uh, and we need to be entertaining and educational. We need to have people who people want to listen to and follow. And uh, that's the key. And I think that's a perfect segue into this next question, because I want to talk a little bit more about representation in journalism and news coverage, you know, making sure audiences are seeing themselves in, in, in their communities and covered in a really authentic way. I think you were just kind of touching on that. You know, newsrooms have long been criticized for a lack of diversity among staff and particularly leadership and how that impacts daily coverage. And I just have to point out that three of us in this conversation are white men. I'm curious if you guys are prioritizing diversity and inclusion in your coverage and sort of how that works out. And anybody who wants to start can can jump in here. Kind of like I said, I think it's it's really important to find people 
who are interesting and uh, and who challenge you know the way that you think and you know this year I guess it's been a, uh, more than a year we hired our, our managing editor Andrea Lopez Villafaña who who's uh, uh, been a lot of fun for us to um, incorporate and to listen to uh, and and just been a very entertaining herself for uh, a certain uh, a segment of the community that we haven't always had a best the best relationship with. As far as um, you know, uh, doing things like I said that is interesting to them, not just about them, and I think that's an important distinction uh, that we've we've been trying to make. But also, I think it's just a matter of getting out and doing. Um, like I said, if you're going to have a show, do the show in different parts of the community about things that those uh, areas are are um, interested in. If you know, unfortunately, this this region is very segregated. There are uh, lots of differences between the regions for historic reasons, and that means you know, uh, go into a place and start writing about things that are going on in that place with their street lights or their uh, parks or their their politics. And uh, and um, sure enough, there's going to be people with different backgrounds who are interested in that. Terrence and Matt, what are your guys' thoughts here? I would say that uh, at least I've experienced since I started with KPBS that people do bring their authentic selves to news meetings, and that includes their pitches. Uh, before I arrived, uh, KPBS did a source tracking project in which we looked at who we're talking to, who we're including in stories in terms of gender, race, ethnicity, etc. cetera. Uh, we're going to expand on that next year. And so this is kind of baked to the DNA of KPBS, from what I can tell, that we are interested in making sure and holding ourselves accountable, making sure we don't succumb to our own personal biases. And that's done by keeping track and keeping data on who we're actually talking to, who we're using in, in stories as sources, who we are and aren't using as in stories. And so that's a way to hold ourselves accountable. Yeah, and I'd add to that. It's super important in journalism for me personally. The Union Tribune editorial board that I took over um, in in 2016 was uh, four white guys and a Latina, and um, it's now half women and three journalists of color. And and so that's been a conscious effort on 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 my part. Um, and I, I'm happy to report that the Union Tribune values that as well, we, we share our staff demographic data, both at a um, staff level and at a management level on our website. So anyone can go on our site and see, um, you know, what our staff looks like, how it reflects the community, if it reflects the community, it does. We need to do a lot more work to, to improve and that will be a perpetual um, effort. Um, but it, it's good to be conscious of that. And it's not just the staff you have, it's as Terrence and, and, and Scott both said, it's the voices that you share and the communities that you reflect. And um, we've been very uh, intentional about that. You know, we, our opinion pages used to be a pro and a con and a third unrelated essay. And now on many days, they're a whole page turned over to a community on a certain issue. And we've been recognized for that. Um, you know, received a Courage in Journalism Award from the Arab American uh, Discrimination Committee. Uh, I was very honored to get the Stonewall, the Spirit of Stonewall Award from Pride this past um, this past summer. And so, not that you do this for the awards, but that I think is a is a show of faith at an institution that has historically favored other institutions at the expense of individuals. 
that the Union Tribune is A, rec- recognizes that failing and B, is trying to turn a corner on it. And so I think if the more you do that, the more you just have those discussions, the, the more valuable that journalism becomes. And let's sort of address kind of an elephant in the room. We know that mistrust of, quote, the media continues to be high. Terrence, starting with you, you know, how do you as a news leader think about the trust of the audience uh, when you run KPBS? First of all, uh, I have to point out that when people say they don't trust the quote unquote media, oftentimes they're talking about cable TV. But they're not talking about cable TV news They're talking about cable TV commentary. And so developing trust, um, encouraging trust, uh, generating trust among audiences is something you do when you come across as authentic. You are part of the community. You're not just reporting on the community. Um, You need to be transparent. You need to, as I said earlier, you need to stick to your mission. For us, that means sticking to the facts being accurate, providing context, and doing so with uh, with fantastic storytelling so that people will keep listening, keep reading, and keep watching. So those are the things that, that develop trust. Another reason is if you make a mistake, you admit the mistake. And for me, um, I came from print. You make a mistake, you print a correction on page 2A, uh, in broadcast, it feels a lot more painful because that correction is taking up valuable airtime. And so I feel that more now, acutely, when we make a mistake. But every single mistake we make, we must do a correction. And so that, I think, is a way to build trust among audiences. But I have to say that some people say they don't trust the quote-unquote news media because we report facts. And some people are allergic to facts and the truth. And the fact that we report news is repugnant to them. Uh, We live in a a rapidly changing society. Many things are new to many people. There's a drive to to turn back the clock in the good old days. And unfortunately, um, or just a, a matter of fact, that time moves forward. And many people don't trust the media because we say things they don't want to hear. We report on new things, new ideas, new innovations. And so that's just an automatic trigger that shuts them down. And as opposed to listening to what we say, reading what we write, they say, oh, I don't trust them because they're they're not telling me what I want to hear. They're not confirming my own worldview. So that's an issue about trust is that people say they don't trust us, but the reality might be that they just don't want to know the truth. They don't want to consume news. They don't want the facts. They don't want accuracy and context that we provide. Yeah, and it seems like that there's more and more options for people where they can go that something will reinforce what they may already believe in. But uh, a question for Matt and Scott, do you guys, does this come up in your minds a lot when you're at work, this idea of trust with the audience? Uh, it's crucial. I mean, it goes to the heart of what we do and, and, the, and, and whether we'll be able to do it for years or decades in, into the future. If people don't trust you, they're not going to turn to you. And I guess I disagree a little bit with Terrence because I, maybe I, maybe because I, I've been here for a while longer, and so people criticize me personally. They think that I've made the wrong decision or surfaced the wrong voice or not included uh, a pertinent voice, you know, and oftentimes uh, I'll listen to them. Uh, sometimes they're right, and I don't let them know that. Um, there are those folks that Terrence is talking about who are going to look to pick a fight no matter what because of their politics or because it's in their nature or because 
this ain't your grandfather's Union Tribune and they're upset about it. And you know what? They're right. It's not our grandfather's uh, Union Tribune. And, and I'm proud of that. Um, but I do think if people don't trust you, they, they're not going to turn to you. So that is something that we all got to grapple with. And, and, and um, you know, that's that's in many ways it's job one. Yeah, I think we can't ignore like kind of what Terrence was saying. There's a, a lot of people who are deliberately trying to destroy uh, the institutions of the press. Um, I think that there are there there there's a lot of anger and and just sort of uh, elite kind of disdain for the idea that journalists can hold powerful people accountable. Who are you to ask me questions? Who are you to hold me accountable? Who are you to to challenge me? And I think you're seeing that all the way from Elon Musk to Donald Trump to others who are just, uh, they're just insulted by the idea that somebody, you know, who hasn't made as much in the world as, as they perceive, um, you know, somebody like me to have done. And I think that that's there and we have to deal with that. And the only way to deal with that is to just prove every single day that you're doing something interesting and that you can be relied on to correct it, like Terrence said, if it's wrong. And to um, and also just to be upfront about where you get your money, where where you get, uh, who supports you, how you operate, who your uh, what your values are. I think that um, media companies have not been transparent about the things that they are biased about. You know, like we are all against uh, murder, we're all against corruption, we're all against um, racism. So what are the other things we can list in a more formal, transparent document about where we stand, what we stand for? Uh, we've tried to address that as well with our nine principles about what we stand for. Uh, I think that the more we can be upfront about like what our actual you know, bias is, because we are humans and we do have a perspective. We do live here. We care about the parks and the streets and the schools being good. And so if we can be clear about that, I think people would understand that we're not trying to like pull one over. I do think there was uh, a flaw in the way that journalism was done where we acted like we didn't have a point of view and then people would see that there clearly is a point of view about certain things, maybe not right or left, but just, you know, a point of view. And I think the more that we can be clear about that, the more trust we can get because we're not just trying to, to, to win trust. We're trying to get their money. We're trying to get their investment, their support. And for somebody to cut you a check, you have to be somebody that they, that they feel like not only is, is, working on their behalf, but is teaching and helping them learn something. That's the thing they value the most is if they read something and they feel like they can go tell their friends or their family something about the world that they didn't know before. And they have to be willing to trust that, that you're doing that and that you're not, you're not doing something underhanded. And people are using that, that concern that something underhanded or ulterior motive is happening. They use that to try to destroy the ability of you know normal people like me to hold billionaires accountable and um and we just have to make sure that we're we're aware of that uh effort all the time i just yeah. want to say that i want people to think that yes i'm biased toward the truth and facts and accuracy and context and fairness because some of these people that say they don't trust us they don't want us to be fair to people we interview people we profile on the topics because they are so entrenched in their own worldviews that the concept of fairness is is just disgusting to them. So I want people to say that, you know, KPBS, you know, they only care about the facts. I, I want people to say that. I care about opinions too, being an opinion writer. But I will say this, that 
what journalists need to do more and better, and I think what journalists in this call are doing every day is explaining to readers why we did something, whether that's why we didn't choose this story to platform or whether we, you know, explain how we got this story, the documents that we read, the effort we put into it, the sources that we called and called again and second guessed and, you know, that, 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 that is part of this. That's part of the trust. And in the olden days, even a decade ago, you didn't really see that a lot in journalism. And, and now that is so crucial to what we do, explaining to our, our, our community why it's important. I say all the time, a free press isn't free. Journalism costs money and less journalism costs society. And that's a pretty trenchant way of, of kind of explaining to people what's at stake here. Coming up, the relevance of Twitter in journalism today. You're listening to a KPBS Roundtable special. You're listening to a KPBS Roundtable special on the future of journalism. I'm Matt Hoffman, and joining me at the Roundtable this week are Voice of San Diego CEO and Editor-in-Chief Scott Lewis, the San Diego Union-Tribune's Editorial and Opinion Director Matt Hall, and KPBS's News Director Terrence Shepard. I was wondering when somebody was going to bring up Elon Musk, and you just talked about, you know, journalism is not free. We've heard a lot about this talk of citizen journalism and the role that that could play. But it's sort of hard to talk about journalism without talking about what's happening at Twitter. And this week, we've had journalists being blocked on the platform, and then Elon Musk announcing that he's going to step down as CEO. I'm curious what you all think the impact that the changes under Twitter at Musk are having on local journalism. I mean, if anything at all, I know I know we went from blue check marks to gold check marks, but is there anything else you guys see impact-wise there? I think that for the last 15 years, about 15 years ago, people started talking about citizen journalism as being uh, something that would upend our role. And I think what the confusing thing is is that every citizen can perform an act of journalism. We saw that with uh, the murder of George Floyd, right? A, a, a young woman filmed that. That's an act of journalism that had profound impacts throughout well, and will still have it for, for many, many years to come. And everybody knows they can perform those acts of journalism. And so it's like, well, what's the point of professional journalism at that point? And I think that Elon's going through what we all went through in 2008, where we're like, wow, that's really going to be disruptive. The fact is, is that ever since that moment, we have realized that professional journalists who can take the time to follow a subject over many months, who can follow uh, meetings because they, that's their job to go to those meetings because and not everybody can go to the meeting. They got, they've got daycare. They've got uh, youth soccer. They've got all kinds of things that they can do at night. They deserve to have 
professionals working on their behalf to follow those things for them. And I think that um, there is always going to be a need for that. But there will always be that disdain from the elite quarters, especially from a lot of Silicon Valley you know, high tech influencers who are just so mad that the New York Times or that others can do mean stories about them, can ask them difficult questions, because what have they done? What have those lowly journalists done to deserve that? And I think like, you know, there will always be this uh, this effort to upend that. But we can just continue to prove our value by saying, like, we will go to that meeting for you. We will look into this issue for you. We will hold the city accountable for this horrific scene of homelessness in our community, for the, for the lack of equity in our schools, for the infrastructure that's falling apart. We will continue to do that. You keep giving us money. And if you feel like that's not working out, you, don't, you can stop giving us money. And we'll keep working to get better. But that's, you know, that's the play we're going to keep running on the side until they uh, literally come at us and say we're not allowed to do that. But that's... That's a bigger discussion about democracy. I would say that uh, the the issue of citizen journalists and anyone going on Twitter doing quote unquote journalism is a fiction. Um, we uh, news organizations need to do a better job of telling people what we do. We traffic in facts. We provide context. We are fair about what we report. Um, we value accuracy. I know some journalists use Twitter and they want to be cool and just generate as many followers. They want to be kings and queens of the platform. And sometimes that means offering these opinions. Some people embarrass themselves, uh, not to mention their news organizations. But we need to, to, to do a better job as news organizations of telling people what we do, the value we add, as opposed to just someone uh, saying something on Twitter, which may or may not be true. And the way you do that is to stick to your own mission, to stick to the facts, stick to fairness, stick to context, stick to accuracy. So that, um, yes, anyone can be a citizen journalist, but we needed to do a better job of communicating to our audiences the value that we add, why we should be followed, why we should be subscribed to or listened to or read. Yeah, I guess I'd say that Twitter is a complicated thing and probably could be its own hour-long conversation. Twitter is, 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 slash was, probably still is, as important to journalism as a printing press was. It revolutionized journalism in ways that I think people don't fully um, give it credit for, uh, and people give it a lot of credit for, uh, give it a lot of credit. Also, Elon Musk, the world, Elon Musk has changed the world already. He made, he, he, he made electric, electric vehicles part of our everyday lives. He's change sport, uh, uh, space uh, uh, tourism in, in ways, you know, um, that we only dreamed of before. And he's trying to make money on Twitter. So he wants people to pay eight bucks. I've used Twitter far less in the last month than I have in any month since the very first month I ever used it. I don't use it anymore, um, which is sad, but it's all about Elon Musk. And I can get that news at any time, anywhere I want. And so I didn't need to turn to a platform to do that. So it, for me personally, I'm using, um, the, the platform less, which is not to say there aren't cool people doing cool stuff there. There still are, but there are also um, um, others saying and doing things that, you know, um, um, none of us should be paying attention to. I don't know what the future is for that platform. You said you've quit Twitter. What platforms are you using now? I mean, I use Post now as a news platform and as a way to start communications with online people. Like, I, I don't know if that's the replacement, quote unquote. I don't know if there ever will be a quote unquote replacement. 
but I've f started talking to video gamers in Sweden and artists in Nova Scotia and the stuff that I, I loved about Twitter when I jumped on it in 2008 is what I'm finding in post now. And there's also a fair amount of anti Elon Musk or pro Elon Musk chatter. Um, but it's, I'm finding that I want to tune that out and I'm able to tune it out and, and explore other things. I had a conversation with someone during the world cup about how amazing the anthems about of each nation were and whether those anthems are the same anthems that started at the birth of the country or if they've ever changed. And this woman does a classical music podcast. She's like, I'm going to do a podcast on that. I'll stay tuned. I'm going to do some research. I'll let you know. That's what I liked about Twitter at the, at, at the beginning, at the midpoint and in its late stages. Um, I mean, Elon Musk is Elon Musk. He's going to do what he wants to do. I don't think he's going to step down anytime soon. Even he has said he'll, he'll step down when he can find someone foolish enough to take the job. Um, but I do think that platform leveled journalism. There is anyone with a phone now can commit journalism. They can't know the training that those of us on this call and other journalists have. They don't have the networks and the ethics. And so that's one of the fault lines, too, that we're trying to figure out is what even is journalism these days? And quickly, like 30-second answers each as we wrap up here, is there anything that you think San Diego news organizations could be doing better or like anything we could be covering more? My big passion is schools and, uh, and young people, but also things that serve them need to be held accountable more. Uh, the uh, lack of sort of hard-hitting accountability and just um, plain like how is this still allowed coverage of – um, local education is, is uh, keeps me up at night about um, the people who are falling through the cracks and the sort of inequities and just failure that we just accept and live with every day. And then, um, you know, sort of uh, the, the, the horrific situation of homelessness in San Diego needs to be addressed at a, at a different gear. It's just not right now. And, um, and I'm going to do my part to try to figure that out too. And uh, Terrence, Matt, your final quick thoughts here. I'd say continue highlighting issues with homelessness, and affordable housing. And there's this thing about alienation from each other, which creates other problems. Why are things the way they are? We need to do more of that. But also, I think we need to remind people why they are here in San Diego. It's very expensive. It's a great place with a lot of positive and the potential to be even greater. So just more accountability and more asking questions. Why, why, why? And Matt, you have the final word. Um, yeah, I mean, I think at a macro level, uh, what we've all talked about over the course of this conversation, it's holding the powerful accountable and giving voice to the voiceless. On a micro level, what I'm going to be focused on this coming year is jail deaths, which should be a far bigger story in San Diego. And it's gotten a lot of attention and it should be a national story. I mean, Rikers has way more people and fewer deaths. And um, it's just stunning to me the level of... Um, acceptance that the powers of be have at the county jail system to let people die in government care. And we're going to have to end the discussion there for this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. And I want to thank all of our guests so much, Scott Lewis, Matt Hall, and Terrence Shepard. Be sure to stream our show anytime as a podcast. Roundtable is produced by Andrew Bracken, and our senior producer is Megan Burke. Our executive technical director is Lisa Morissette, and I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us, and have a great weekend.
KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.